All right. I'm glad you're all here. Um, we have a few different things to talk about today. The first one uh, I want to talk about is uh, the prophecy of uh, Eldad and Medad uh, in the camp of Israel and what the Targum Yonasan has to say about that. And I just, let me just uh, introduce it in the following way that um, I, the Targum Yonasan is a very, very special source and I feel privileged to be saying anything over from it. It's in Aramaic and it really contains a lot of the secrets of the Torah. And it, it hasn't been translated and it's, um, you know, it's a very, very exalted source. So, um, in fact, it says in, in the Gemara that that when it was revealed that basically there was this giant earthquake in Israel that just shook Israel. And whether that's, whether that's literal or not, the, the point is, maybe it's also literal, but the, but the point is, is that these were sort of revolutionary um, depths of the Torah that, that emerged. And the Gomorrah says that these ideas were not innovated uh, by this commentator, who is usually uh, referred to as Yonasan ben Uziel, but rather these were secrets that were handed down in Israel and were collected in this text, the Targum Yonasan. So... So you'll see that, that there's a, a tremendous depth that will inform our understanding of what the Gomorrah says about Eldad and Medad. So, so who are they? So some people know, some people don't know. Fascinating incident in the Torah itself. Basically, what happens is, is that, to put it in modern parlance, Moshe Rabbeinu gets completely stressed out. I mean, to the extent that we can use that language in describing Moshe Rabbeinu, there it is, right? And he says to Hashem, you know, I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore, basically. And so Hashem says back to um, Moshe, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take some of your awesome level of prophecy and I'm going to spread it out upon 70 elders. And so they're basically going to help you out and they're going to help you with this tremendous, tremendous burden that you're experiencing. Now it's, it's interesting to see what actually triggered Moshe's uh, response like this. But anyway, that, that's, that's for another time. That's for another time. Um, in other words, what the immediate events preceding Moshe's saying this were. But again, that's for another time. The main point is that Hashem creates this, this lottery system where, the, um, where only 70 are going to be eligible, but it has to be drawn from a, a pool of 72 because of the number of tribes and the number of representatives that has to be taken from each tribe. And so they're going to be, the Gomorrah explains, two blank, two blank um, uh, dominoes for slates, whatever it is, within the bag. And whoever draws the blanks won't be chosen. So now there's a big question as to the status of Eldad and Medad. They are two leaders and either they drew blanks or they didn't draw blanks. It's very unclear. What the commentators take pains to express is that they stayed behind for whatever reason while the rest of the elders went off into the tent into the Ohel with Moshe. And that the reason why they stayed behind is because of this awesome level of humility that they were experiencing. Okay? So they were very, very humble people. Now, the famous prophecy that they say that's, that's known to everyone, 
is that Moshe Rabbeinu is going to die and that Yehoshua is going to take over for him. And that Moshe Rabbeinu is actually not going to take the children of Israel into the land itself. Now, Yehoshua hears this and he runs to Moshe because listen to what he's just heard. First of all, it seems like there's a wildcat prophecy going on inside the camp because that's supposed to be taking place with the 70 elders inside the tent. All of a sudden, there are people prophesying. Just want to take a moment to point out that I said that word correctly. (laughs) Anyway, um, you're going to hear it a lot, and there will be inner glee every time I say it right. But anyway, um, that they're prophesying in the camp itself, which is just like out of bounds. So it seems like a... It seems like an illegal thing, you know, to use an odd word, that, that, that's happening. Okay, so that's one of the reasons why Yeshua is upset. But he's also upset because he's hearing that his master is going to die and that he's going to take over. And so there's a lot that's going on, like, right, right at this instant. Now, now... I just want to tell you one, one explanation that I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Ishvitzer Rebbe. An amazing, an amazing interpretation. You know, this is, you get a, a sense for the Ishvitzer here, how he finds an amazing way to, to understand what the Torah is saying. That, um, that Eldad and Medad were actually trying to save Moshe Rabbeinu's life. So it sounds like, well, wait a second. They're saying that Moshe is going to die and Yehoshua is going to take over and he's not going to lead them into the land. How do, how do you figure, you know? So, so basically, basically what they're saying is that, is, that, is that the land of Israel is a land of fixing. And that and that someone who doesn't need any fixing doesn't need entrance into the land. And with this in mind, now you can understand the whole incident with Aaron and Miriam seemingly speaking against Moshe Rabbeinu. It's not understood in this context that they were trying to speak Lashon Hara, God forbid, against Moshe Rabbeinu. But they were trying to find some aspect about him that needed fixing so that he could go into the land and lead the Jewish people into the land. So that, that's, that's just one way of understanding this. But let's, let's, get back into, let's get back into the Yonasan bin Uziel. Because, because basically, there are three interpretations that, or three opinions, I should say, that the Gomorrah in Mesechta Sanhedrin, uh, in uh, Yud Zayin Amid Aleph, 17a, bring down as to what Eldad and Medad actually said. So, so now you're going to see it's a much wider conversation. And what I'm going to attempt to show you is how all three of these opinions are linked together and how they actually, uh, that they're not just disparate ideas that the Chachamim, that the sages are throwing, throwing out, but that rather there's an order and a continuity to these three opinions. Okay. And the first opinion, as we said, is that Moshe is going to die and that Yeshua is going to take over. Okay? 
Then the second opinion is that, no, what Eldad and Medad said were that quail, the quail that they were praying for, because if you remember, right before Moshe prays to be relieved, he's, the Jewish people are complaining about the manna, and, and they want meat. And that in itself is an, an amazing discussion. You know, like Reb Shlomo said, they weren't just like requesting hamburgers, you know? There is something much deeper to what they were talking about, because basically, basically mana was, was like, you know, the way the sages understand what mana was, man, is that it was basically um, crystallized light from heaven, and that angels eat light. They eat heavenly light. I mean, this is obviously all very deep, like, what does this mean exactly, right? And that this light, when it descended into this world, sort of, sort of crystallized and became man. Alright? So it's basically, it's, it's basically the food of angels. And that the people weren't there yet. They, they needed to have something more substantive. They needed meat. You know, someone was just telling me the story last Shabbos that they said that they were um, that they knew someone. It was actually their their wife at the time, and um, this person was a vegetarian, and but more for he said political reasons. I didn't really understand that meat is murder kind of thing, you know. Anyway, so so they were they were walking past a delicatessen, and hadn't eaten meat in years, and all of a sudden, like, ran into the deli and ate a pastrami sandwich. Right? And then the next day, they walked by that same deli, and again, just ran in and ate another pastrami sandwich. And then found out, shortly thereafter, uh, she found out that she was pregnant. So, So, in other words, sometimes... The, sometimes the, the body and the soul aren't always in lockstep with each other. And in this instance, sometimes the body senses needs before even the mind senses needs. Sometimes if the body is being neglected, it will rebel on you because it isn't being treated properly or it isn't having its needs met exactly. So a, a balance has to be worked out. In Torah, we should understand... You know, I'll tell you a story. Um, it's actually how I, the first meeting, how I got my job uh, writing uh, for a show called Third Rock from the Sun. And it was, um, it was actually, it's a show uh, about aliens, but um, it's really a show about becoming human. And these sort of aliens come down to Earth and they take on human bodies. But the interesting thing about that dynamic is that the, the, the persona that they take on isn't necessarily who they were in their space scenario. In other words, the elder statesman comes down as a 14-year-old, and the warrior comes down as this beautiful woman, and there's all sorts of disconnects. And I remember when I first read this script, um, when, before the show was picked up, it was just a, a pilot, you know, uh, I read it and I was like, wow, this is an incredible parallel between the body and the soul. Because the body has, the soul has one identity and the body has another identity and they're not always working together. 
And then I thought, well, I have a meeting with the executive producers. I'm absolutely not going to bring that up with them. <laughs> you know, so then I remember I met with them and I started talking and we were laughing and we were getting along pretty well. And then I, I, I literally, this is a direct quote. I literally said this just because it's so bizarre that I actually said this in, the, in this meeting. I said to them, I said, are you aware that there are theological underpinnings to your work? (laughs) And then I had something close to an out-of-body experience as I watched myself on the couch losing the job that I was about to get. (laughs) And I explained to them this whole body-soul disconnect and and how that related to their, how that related to their, um, comedy for, um, at that point, ABC. (laughs) And their jaws dropped after I finished, and they said, that is exactly what we were going for. And to which I responded, no, it is. No, it wasn't. (laughs) I I just didn't believe them, you know. And they said, yes, it is. And I said, no, it isn't. (laughs) And they said, yeah, it is. And I said, well, if that's the case, then I demand to work for you, you know. And they liked that. They laughed at that. And that was the beginning of a long, uh, uh, blessed run, you know. Um, amen, amen. So, um, so, so I, I, I think maybe consciously or unconsciously, having gotten to know them much better, they, they, they I think they did have that in mind actually, but maybe not exactly how I said it, but I, I, I do think they did have that in mind. And the point is, is that the way the Torah understands the relationship between the body and the soul. It's, we're supposed to be best friends. But that's a, that's, that's, that takes a while to get to that place. You know? It doesn't start off that way. You know? Um, let me give you an example. Um, the, after 120, after we leave this world, the soul leaves the body. And we see that the body without a soul is just a lump of earth basically. So the body for sure needs the soul. Otherwise it doesn't, it's, it, it, it's not active. It's not in this world really. The soul absolutely needs the body because let's say the soul, when it's in this world, wants to do mitzvahs. It understands that that's why the world was created. That's why it's created to do mitzvahs. But without the body, how is it going to hand a dollar to a homeless person? How is the soul going to affect that? It can't. It needs the body in order to, to, to activate, if you will, its desires. So, so this, is, this is the ideal relationship between the body and the soul. They're best friends. The soul keeps the body alive. The body allows the soul to interact in this world in a harmonious, holy, beautiful way. Right? So, what's the problem? The problem is, is that the body wants a lot of the things that the soul doesn't want necessarily. You know? And that actually, that can be a really nice transition into this section about the spies, even though we're just at actually the very beginning of this thing about Eldad and Medad. Um, Well, I'll try to be disciplined right now and stay on the topic of the Eldad and Medad. But, but we're going to transition back into, God willing, 
this idea of the body and the soul and how it relates to the spies. So let me just finish this up quickly then. Um, so, so again, there are three opinions in the Gomorrah as to what Eldad and Medad actually uh, said. The first is that Moshe was going to die and Yeshua was going to take over. The second is, is that the quail are going to come in and feed the people. And that's how we got onto this subject of the body and the soul to begin with. The fact was that the people were on in a way that their bodies hadn't catched up, caught up with their souls. That their bodies still demanded meat. That they were still making the transition to this very high level of knowledge that they received at Mount Sinai. And that's a process. And we all have to be very patient with ourselves. Because no one ever got the truth more clearly than the Jewish people initially when the sea split and all the heavens split. And then afterwards at Mount Sinai. And you see there's a whole series of disconnects where they go wrong. So, so it's just very important that they, no one got the truth more clearly and better than they did. And yet you see that there was still this transition, this catching up with their bodies to their souls. Okay, so if God was patient with them, how much more must He be patient with us? And how much more must we be patient with ourselves? I was discussing this idea with someone, and they were like, I don't really get it. Like, the body has to catch up with the soul. And he said to me, you mean like smoking? Everyone knows smoking is bad, but then people still smoke, even though they know it's bad. So I thought that that was a really nice, clear example of the body still catching up with the soul. You know? Um, okay. So, so, you know how that episode ends. And it's, it's not a happy ending. It's, it's really one of the more tougher moments in the Torah. This incredible miracle comes where all of a sudden it's like, where are you going to get meat in the middle of the desert? By the way, you know, there, there is one detail that we have to know just about ourselves. The Jewish people at that point had a lot of cattle. Okay, they left with a lot of cattle. So if that's the case, you say, well, wait a second, they had meat to eat, didn't they? So then what were they complaining about? Well, we need meat to eat. Um, that's a cow, right? <laughs> you know. And it's not like they were averse to... They, so, so in other words, the point I'm trying to make is we have to understand that on some level, the sages say they were also complaining for the sake of complaining. So this is also part of our nature that we have to understand that we're very hard to satisfy and that part of human nature and this is a positive and a negative part of human nature is by nature to be unsatisfied now part of that comes from a very deep soul place because Mashiach isn't in the world yet until Mashiach is in the world something is lacking and we sense that something in a very deep way is lacking and so we experience it in random, fuzzy ways of, not fuzzy in the sense of comfy, fuzzy like unclear ways of just general anxiety, general dissatisfaction. But it's because of something very clear. Mashiach is not in the world. You know, I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, it's a known thing 
People get a little bit depressed Motzei Shabbos. Shabbos goes out, you feel like a heaviness, you feel a sadness. And part of the reason is because Mashiach isn't in the world yet. That's what I heard Reb Shlomo say. Because Shabbos is a little taste of Gan Eden, of the Garden of Eden. So you're feeling a little bit the completion of the world, that the world is complete. And then all of a sudden you come back down and it's like, ah, you're reminded on a soul level that it's not the case. Remember, the Gomorrah says, one of the treatments for this, the Gomorrah says that Motzei Shabbos, it's a segula to have a hot drink. Everyone should really have a hot drink, Motzei Shabbos, because that's, the Gomorrah says that's a refua. We can get into it another time why that's the case. But, but a healing does actually need to take place after Shabbos, because you do feel a loss. You know, I'd like to connect that, by the way, to something, it's my thought, bless you. But, you know, when you daven Shemona Esrei, you see a similar dynamic. You take three steps forward, and you daven Shemona Esrei. Okay, you take three steps back, you take three steps forward, but the point is you take three steps forward. Bless you. And everyone knows, Kabbalistically speaking, there are four worlds. So we're in this bottom world, Olamasiya. You take three steps forward, you're climbing all the way up to Atsilas. And you're davening, and you're really before the king. This is the idea of three steps forward. You're, you're, you're ascending the worlds. So you're reaching a very high level. But the point that I'm trying to make is that when you take three steps backwards at the end of Shemona Esrei, the very first thing that you daven for is that the base of Migdash should be rebuilt. Why is that? So it connects very clearly. After you've been up to Atsilas on a soul level, after you've experienced the realm of completion where everything is right and good and fulfilled, as soon as you get back down, you go, what? There's no base of Migdash? What? The world is broken? You're reminded immediately of the brokenness of the world. And so, what's the most direct way of fixing the brokenness of the world? Is the rebuilding of the base of Migdash. So that's, Mamish, the very first thing that you daven for when you come back down. So, so, the, so we eat the meat and we die eating the meat. It says, while the meat was still in between our teeth, a lot of people died. So that's a heavy end to that episode. Which means, you know, I mean, I hate to make the comparison. It's, it's too horrible. But, you know, a lot of people died after the Holocaust when they were given a chance to eat food again. And they ate. They, they, cons- they, they consumed too many calories that their body couldn't, couldn't take at that moment. And a lot of people died. It's a documented thing at that moment. It's tragic. It's completely heartbreaking. But what you see there is that there's a delicate balance between the needs of the body and the needs of the soul. It's very delicate. It's very, very delicate. And, and somehow, somehow, when we ate the meat, of the of the of the of the quail at that time somehow it wasn't done in a balanced way somehow somehow i mean i'm sure there's more to be said but that's the general idea that's the general idea so so anyway the second pro- the second opinion in the gomorrah is that is that eldad and medad uh, said that the the quail are coming because if you think about it, it was a giant miracle. They're in the middle of the desert. 
There is no quail or meat except for the meat that was there. Okay, but... And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you have this massive influx, massive, massive influx of quail that comes and just just parks for them to eat. Okay. Now, the third opinion, what's the third opinion? Is the apocalyptic war of Gog Umagog. Now, you say, wait a second, that's totally coming out of left field. We're here in the desert. There's Moshe. He's about to lead us in, as far as we know. Okay, so you want to say Moshe is going to die and Yeshua is going to bring them in? Okay, that relates to the here and now. You want to talk about the quail? Well, they were just complaining about the quail. Okay, fine, you want to say the quail are on the way? Great, say the quail are on the way. But where is this wild card third opinion coming from that this apocalypse is going to happen? Where is that coming from? So, just to be clear... There are two opinions, but, but the more, actually, I think, accepted opinion among the Torah sages is the less well-known one. So let me just speak that out for our clarity's sake. This idea of Gog Umagag, right, is a lot of people think it's two, two personalities. There's Gog and Magog, however you want to pronounce it. But really, what we say is that it's Gog who's the king and he's from the land of Magog. So it's really one person. And, and, and he's the king and that's the name of the land. Okay. So, so what, what, the, what the Targum Yonasan, and, and how does the Gomorrah learn out that, that they're saying that? Because that prophecy is most famously said by Yechezkel, the prophet Ezekiel. Way later. Way later. All right? Now listen to this. Here's what the Gomorrah says. It says, um, Thus says the Lord, our God, this is, this is, uh, this is Yechezkel speaking, are you, meaning Gog, so this is Hashem talking to Gog, are you Gog, the one about whom I spoke in ancient days through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days years ago that I was going to bring you against them? So in other words, when, when Gog comes on the scene, Hashem says to him, I know you. I know you. I've been talking about you since a long, long, long time ago. Alright? That would be the modern English translation of that, <laughs> of that verse. The, the sages zero in on one word in there. It says, don't read it as it's written years, shanim, rather, read shnayim, meaning two, two, two prophets spoke about you. Now, we don't really have an occurrence, as far as I know in the Torah, of two, two separate people prophesying simultaneously the same prophecy. So that's how the sages learn out that it was Eldad and Medad who were prophesying simultaneously this thing, because they, they're, they're looking through all the sources. Where do you see two people saying the same thing? Well, it's only Eldad and Medad, so they must have been talking about this prophecy about Gogu Magog. Amazing way of learning that out. Okay, so now let's go to the Targum Yonasan for a moment. You know what he says? Something amazing. 
So we've got three opinions. They said one of these three things, right? That's, that's how you understand the, the Gemara. So the Targum Yonasan says, Eldad said the first one, Maydad said the second one, and they both said the third one. So, you know, I got chills, because that's like, that's a big secret. You don't see that written in, you don't see that written there. That's a secret. That's a secret. Because all three are right. All three are right. They said all three. But the two of them said the last one together. All right. So now I want to try to make sense. So what does the Targum Yonasan say? He says this leader, Gog, is going to come from the land of Magog. And he's going to ascend the mountains of Jerusalem with, armor, with, with generals in armor. And they're going to have crowns on their head. And this tremendous light is going to come down from heaven and it's going to kill them all, okay? The army, as they're, before they attack Jerusalem. And then what's going to happen is that the dead of Israel are going to become resurrected. So it's... That's the end of days. I shared this with someone and, you know, you can take it or leave it I'm not endorsing this interpretation necessarily, but this idea that a fire is going to come down from heaven, you know, you could say that sounds like a nuclear event. Maybe. I don't know. It says the animals are going to feed on their carcasses, and then the dead are going to become resurrected. Now, the Targum Yorshami which is sort of a companion piece to the Targum Yonasan, uses a word that the Targum Yonasan doesn't use, which is Mashiach. So Mashiach is going to come. He doesn't talk about the resurrection of the dead, but he talks about Mashiach. So it's very clear that we're talking about the end of days here. Okay, so now, I just want to give my own question and answer, and I'll try to do this very quickly. Just try to make sense of this, because I have a question, which is, why are they talking about some far distant event while we're still in the desert. Eldad and Medad. Because this seems like this, this apocalyptic Eldad, Medad, uh, Gogu Magog type thing seems like something that happens in the very far distant future. And it seems like at this point in the Torah, we're on our way into Israel. Moshe is still the leader of the Jewish people. I mean, how can they be prophesying about something that's so distant and implies so many misconnects and disconnects in Jewish history. What, how do you make sense out of it? Why then? Why that then? Um, so I want to base my answer on something that I heard from Reb Shlomo in a different context, but it, you'll see in a similar context. The clearest prophecy about Mashiach in the entire five books of the Torah is from the prophet Bilam. And I asked Reb Shlomo the question, um, how is it that Bilaam, who was such an enemy of the Jewish people, in fact, it says that he was the reincarnation of Lavan, who tried to wipe out the Jews when it was just one family, right? When it was just Yaakov. So Bilaam is like, kind of like the arch enemy. He's like the anti-Moshe. So how can it be that Bilaam, of all people, was prophesying about, about Mashiach, right? doesn't make sense exactly. Well, it does, but why? So Reb Shlomo said something really interesting. He said at that point, in, the, in the, just the narrative of what's going on in terms of the Chumash, 
Moshe Rabbeinu is still the leader of the Jewish people, even though he's been told he can't go into the land at that point. But nonetheless, he's still the leader of the Jewish people, and he's right on the border of Israel. Like, that's positionally where they were. And so that potential energy of Moshe still leading the Jewish people right on the border of Israel, that Bilaam channeled into that energy. And he was able to just prophesy about the about Mashiach. So now, based on that, I want to apply that to this and show how all three prophecies, or how all three opinions in the Gomorrah actually spell out a very, actually make perfect sense. Moshe dying, the quail coming, and Gogumaga, the resurrection of the dead. Basically, this is before the decree of the 40 years wandering. So if Moshe, if we can say that the potential Mashiach energy of Moshe with the Jewish people on the border of Israel, when Bilaam prophesied, was like very extant and like very palpable that he was able to tap into it, how much more so at the moment where Moshe is still the head of the Jewish people, where Moshe hasn't hit the rock, where the Meraglim haven't brought back their report yet, and so the decree of 40 years wandering in the desert hasn't happened yet. In other words, we're still at a point in Jewish history where seemingly we're still on the express rail of Moshe leading the Jewish people in. So there must have been a lot of Mashiach in the air at that point. So now you see how all three are going to connect. First they say Moshe's, Moshe's not going to make it. He's not going in. Second, you've got the whole thing about the quail, meaning, meaning that it's going to take a long time for the Jewish people to get the body-soul equilibrium thing down, and that it's going to be a long exile, a very long exile. And then, off the heels of the idea of it being a long exile, all of a sudden the idea of Gog, Umagog, all of a sudden has a context and fits in perfectly. Yeah, it's going to happen, but it's down the line, guys. It's down the line after a lot of different events. It's down the line. So there's an integrity to all three opinions, and they actually work in lockstep with each other. Okay. So, so let's talk about now the spies and how we can fix our body-soul Equilibrium, right? Because that's what, that's what we have to do. So I want to read to you the instructions. Um, I want to read the instructions. And before I start, let me just uh, give just a, a, a quick word that came to me. Um, we're going to be reading from right from the beginning of Shalach, uh, chapter 13. And the key phrase is going to be in... Uh, um, Pasuk verse number 20. Um, but anyway, um, it's just a few words that I'm going to quote. But, but anyway, you know, there's, a, there's kind of this striking parallel in terms of names of Parshas. We have Lech Lecha and Shlach Lecha. Shlach is often known as Shlach, but the next word is Lecha. So you've got Lech Lecha, which is, which is like 
that's the happy lacha, right? That's the one where Abraham Avinu like goes into Israel and he gets blessed with everything and it's it's really very positive. Then you've got the shlach lacha, which is like, whoa, you know, that's the opposite. That's a bummer, right? Like that's 40 years of wandering and all sorts of disaster, okay? So, but, you know, they're... they're they seem to be pretty linked. They seem to sound like the same. And both of them talk about going forth in a way. Lech lecha and shlach lecha. So what's the difference? So I want to say on a deep level the following. Lech lecha, really as the sages understand it, is a traveling within yourself. That first one has to travel within themselves. And they have to fix themselves. And then... Because if they don't, if you've got a shlach lecha ascending out before you yourself are fixed, it's going to end in disaster. Okay. So, so, so I want to just get into the instructions that, um, that Moshe Rabbeinu mentions. Uh, but first, there's something very important to understand. So, the rabbis teach us that, that the sages basically came back as they, the, the spies, the way they left is the way they came back, basically. What does that mean? That means that either consciously or unconsciously, they knew what they were going to report before they even got there. Now, I think that that's very significant, and I've seen this professionally with journalists who have, even last, this past week, just someone just volunteered this to me, actually, a journalist, that, that they know the story that they're going to write before they write it, and when they quote-unquote research or investigate, or the reporting quote-unquote process, is really just a filling in of quotes and facts that will just buttress the premise that they already have. In other words, there's no real original research going on, for the most part, with most reporting. They're just going to flesh out what they, what they already know going in. So, so if that's the case, if that's basically normal human nature, and we see it with the spies also, that they basically knew what they were going to report before they even went in. Again, it's not always conscious. This is the important thing. That means that all of us in the here and now, you and me, I'm talking to us right here and now, all of us have a story in our minds about this world and about who we are and what this world is and what God is and what the real nature of being in this world is. And we find our facts and support that which we have already decided. So if you miss your bus in the morning, well, of course I miss my bus, because that's the world. The world is where I'm always missing my bus. Right? And that guy gave me that look. Well, of course he gave me that look. What else is he going to... How else is he going to look at me? 
we're, 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 we're just, that's not living. That's not seeing. It's a complete misuse of life. We have to decide what it is that we actually believe. And we have to make it a conscious thing. Because otherwise we're going to be supporting, even if we don't want to support it, we're going to be supporting and, 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 and buttressing a negative vision of the world. Even if we don't believe it. So now let's look at the instructions that Moshe gives the spies. All right? I'm going to give you like a run into it. Okay? But the key word is coming up. It's a few lines down. He says to them, and again, every single one of these words is important. You can darshan every single one of these words. Moshe sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and he said to them, ascend here in the south and climb the mountain. I'm telling you, the south and the mountain, climb, every single one of these words is significant, but we're not going to get to it. See the land. How is it? And the people that dwells in it. Is it strong or weak? Is it few or numerous? And how is the land in which it dwells? Is it good or is it bad? And how are the cities in which it dwells? Are they open or are they fortified? And how is the land? Is it fertile or is it lean? Are there trees in it or not? Now, listen to these words. You shall strengthen yourselves and the rest of the Pusik, and take from the fruit of the land. Okay, on the most simple, 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 simple level, the fruit was very big. So you'd have to strengthen yourself before picking up the fruit. But I can't imagine Moshe Rabbeinu was telling the spies, you know what, bend your knees before you lift up something heavy, otherwise you're going to hurt your back. Right? I, can't, I mean, the Torah is talking about every single level. So on some level he was telling us, bend your knees before you pick up something heavy. I'm sure that's true. But let's, let's go a little bit deeper, okay? He was telling them, strengthen yourselves. Why was he telling them to strengthen them, 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 themselves? Because they were going to be tested. You know, I was sharing with the Hebra yesterday. When I was growing up, I thought the idea of Judaism and tests, that we get tested in Judaism, was not a Jewish concept. I thought that was another religion. It's all over Judaism. <laughs> it's like in every... You know, like the Thomas's English muffins? It's in every nook and cranny. You know, it's all over the place. It's all over the place. And remember, remember what the Kutzka Rebbe says about how the dynamics of tests work. If you, whatever level you're on, Hashem gives you a test. If you pass that test, you get a harder test. If you pass that test, you get a harder test. If you fail that test, you get an easier test. Fill that test, you get an easier test. And so we're constantly being, you know, Hashem has us gauged exactly where we're holding. And He's sending us things precisely where we're holding. And if we're not able to withstand it, okay, a little bit less. But it's almost like the language of our relationship. And it's not, it's not a bad thing like, well, well, I don't like this because I'm... Wants to be tested all the time, but that's not. But that's not it. That's that's a misunderstanding of it. If you if you remember, we talked about it last week. When again, one of the absolute fundamental 
pieces of information in terms of understanding life and the world we live in is that the Garden of Eden, when you look at the Garden of Eden, we think, why do we have to work, right? When does man get cursed with work and women get cursed with hard labor during pregnancy? When does that happen when we eat from the tree? So it must have been before we ate from the tree, it was party time, right? But if you look at what the Torah says before we ate from the tree, it said, and and here's man, this is before Chava, this is before, before Eve is created even. And there was man, and there was no one to work the garden. Operative word here, work. Before, before we did anything, it was already a work session. That's this world. We're partners with God for completing the world. This world is a work session. It is an application of effort. And why that's so difficult for us, especially living in a Western society in the year 2009, is because every billboard that we see, every commercial we see, every product we see is all about exhale. You know, this is going to make your skin even softer, right? You know what? You, are gonna, you, you think you smell good now? Wait till you put this on. You know, I mean, everything is designed to soften us and to pamper us and to tell us, like, you know, that work essentially is somehow alien to why we're here. To the point where when we experience, when the world talks to us and says, remember, it's a work session, we go, huh? That's weird. I thought... Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I thought that's the premise. Right? So it's it's we're in a very weird thing. You know, I've talked I've spoken about it other times, the idea of movie time versus real time. You watch a movie and it's sort of like um it's the guy getting ready for the date, right? Or the woman getting ready for the date. And she's sort of like, you know, trying on 12 dresses. Well, that's always done in the getting dressed montage, right? So, you know, you just cut from one dress to the other dress, right? There's no problem with a zipper or, or a problem with someone to zip up the dress, right? That's all not, not you know, it's just bang, 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 bang. And then what happens? The guy knocks on the door. Then what happens? You're in the restaurant or whatever it is. You know, what about waiting for the elevator? <laughs> what about ripping your pantyhose on the way to the door? Right? What about the traffic jam and the fact that the car smells like cigarette smoke? <laughs> and the fact that you're going to miss your... Right? All that stuff. It's in movie time. We're conditioned to think in terms of movie time. All the effort, when we have to put in effort, seems extraneous and erroneous. It's wrong. Why am I experiencing this discomfort, this, this need to work? There must be something wrong with me or in this system that I'm working in or the world or God because I'm being asked to do something that all of the sensory bombardment around me is telling me I don't have to do. So one has to understand this world. 
Um, and then when you realize, okay, I've got to roll up my sleeves and get to it, then it's like everything is much better. You go, okay, I'm a batter at the plate. Here comes the pitch. I'm ready for the pitch. There are going to be balls coming at me. I'm waiting for them. I'm waiting for that thing to go wrong, so to speak. I'm waiting for that thing to need an extra phone call. I'm waiting for that letter that needs to be written. And then when it comes, it's like, bang, I'm there. Bang, I'm there. Because that's my orientation. And then all of a sudden, life becomes a different life. You're living a different life. But we have to strengthen ourselves. That's the point. Moshe Rabbeinu is telling them, when you encounter life, you have to strengthen yourself. Understand these things are coming. Now I've got to tell you something absolutely mind-blowing, okay? Why weren't the spies seen? Why weren't they seen? There are 12 people. These are not military experts. They were not seen. They were able to explore all of Israel and come back. They should have gotten caught. If the place was so, like, formidable, with giants and whatnot, they should have gotten caught. They should have gotten killed. They should have gotten captured. Why were they able to walk all around and come back? You know what the sources say? You ready for this? Something nuts. You ready? Hashem made it that they were busy burying their dead. That way they were too busy to see the spies. Alright, now let's take it from the spies' point of view. I have to give a report about this land. Hmm, funeral going on over there. Funeral going on over there. Funeral going on in there. What kind of land is this? Everybody's dying. Meanwhile, God did it as a chesed, as a kindness for the spies so that they wouldn't be seen. Is there a better lesson that sometimes what we see isn't necessarily indicative of the goodness of what Hashem has planned for us and in store for us? But we have to strengthen ourselves. We have to strengthen ourselves and understand God is good and He intends good for us. Then we can see past the superficial. Remember, we talk about it all the time when we cover our eyes during Shema Yisrael. It's to block out this superficial level of understanding. To tune into the depth, to the oneness and the goodness of God which is everywhere. But it doesn't mean that it's not work. And that doesn't mean that if it's work and God is good, that that's not a contradiction. It isn't a contradiction. It isn't a contradiction. And then we can get so much done. Then we can make breakthroughs. We can make absolute breakthroughs. But it involves strengthening ourselves. So, so I know we're running a little bit late. If anyone has to leave, feel, um, feel free to leave. But I just want to wrap it up with one, one comment. It's in the third paragraph of the Shema. It says that, um, it says that, uh, that we have to watch after our hearts and our eyes. Right? Not to stray after our hearts and our eyes. And Rashi says something very interesting. He reverses them. He says, the eyes see and the heart desires. And then it goes further, which is kind of, I mean, just in case the person didn't get the point, right? He makes it pretty explicit. He says, the heart and the eyes procure sin for the body. (laughs) So I was joking around. I was saying, you didn't know that you came in with a built-in escort service, did you? Right? 
Like everyone comes with their own, you know, whatever. So, but what is this idea of Rashi reversing it? When the Torah clearly says, don't stray after the heart and the eyes, why is Rashi saying the eyes and the heart? So I heard someone say, explain, very beautifully, because the heart comes first in the Torah. Don't stray after your heart and your eyes, because if the heart doesn't desire, the eyes won't see. The eyes only see what the heart desires. You know, my father once put it this way. He said, um, he said, I guess he was talking about, um, I think he was talking about marriage. And he was saying that if you go to a restaurant and you eat a full meal and you're full, do you walk out of the restaurant and think, oh, what restaurant am I going to go to next right now? You don't, because you're, you're satisfied, right? So, but if a person is hungry, then they're looking. So, if you find your eyes wandering, and you find yourself looking at different things, the place to start is your heart. Because again, the eyes don't see what the heart doesn't desire. Start with your heart. Um, look in your heart. Figure out what, what is it that I'm missing and how can I address that in a real way. And now maybe we can just tie it all together in terms of the body-soul connection. Because, you know, sometimes... Sometimes we, uh, we make a mistake. You see, you have something called, it's called in different terms, but one of the terms is, it's the from Yetzirah, where the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, masquerades itself as a big rabbi and tries to get you to do stuff that you're not exactly ready to do yet, knowing that at a certain point there's going to be a negative reaction and you're going to throw the whole thing off. So it makes a whole calculation. It says, okay, so you'll do X number more mitzvahs, but since I know in the long run you'll end up doing no mitzvahs, I'll get you to do these extra mitzvahs now, and I win. I win in the end. And it's an especially evil Yetzirah, because the person at the moment thinks that they really are doing the right thing. So it's a very, it's a very difficult thing. That's why you need teachers and good friends and people who know you and, and, and everything like that to help guide you in terms of your your, uh, your path, that you have to go at the right pace. Um, so, so, because what happens is sometimes a, a person will escalate and, and, and then the body will say, okay, now it's time for me. You know? And it's sort of like, you know, revenge of the goof. <laughs> Now playing, right? Hopefully not. So, goof means body in Hebrew. Um, so, so, I'll just really end with this thought. Uh, just a very practical way for us to analyze where we're holding and how to address these needs in a very practical, specific way. There are two main ways to serve God. 
One is through love and the other is through awe. Ahava and Yira. And they call them the two wings of the dove. And a dove needs two wings in order to fly. Ava, love, and awe. So what's awe? What's yira? So yira is a very interesting quality. Sometimes translated as fear. And that's not a bad translation, by the way. But it's an incomplete translation. Because you have what's known as lower yira and higher yira. Lower yira is actual fear of punishment where you have a consciousness and a relationship with God, which is that Hashem is there to zap me. He is waiting to zap me. He's got his lightning rod. His arm is extended, so to speak. He's just waiting for me to mess up. And then, boom! It's coming down. Okay. That's, that's a low level of Yira. It's Yira. It's Yira. But it's a very, very low level. The higher level of Yira is, like the Baal Shem Tov explains, I'm in the palace of the king. And it's so exalted and it's so beautiful and everything is so exact and holy and perfect. And I don't want to mess anything up because I don't want to damage my relationship with the king. Now, that higher level of Yira has a lot of Ava in it. It's Ava, the higher level of Yira already has a lot of love mixed in it. And it promotes more of a love because you see the awesomeness and the majesty of the king. So you love him more. And then, as you love him more, you want to be even more careful. And then, you are even more careful, you love him even more. And you climb the ladder of Ava and Yira and Ava and Yira, and it just keeps on going. And there's no, there's no limit to it. There's no limit to it. Okay. So now, what happens... What happens with many of our lives is that our Ava and our Yira, the two wings of the dove, get out of balance. If we're feeling in our life that God is ready to zap me at any moment, if that's where you're holding in terms of your relationship with God, you need more love in your relationship. If you feel like, you know what, it doesn't matter what I do, God loves me to pieces and I can do whatever I want, you need a little more Yira in your relationship. And so a person has to look inside their soul, examine their relationship and how, you know, how they're conducting themselves and the level that they're on, which is appropriate for them. All of these factors have to be mixed together. And then once they do that, they can, they can get this, they can fly basically. They can take off and they can fly. Right? So, so this is sort of like, so to speak, the, um, the doctor's prescription. And now that you know that, you can begin to apply it to yourself and seek counsel based on that, you know? Because that's the blueprint. That's the blueprint. I just wanted to give you the difference between one year to another. The low part of the year is being scared. And the high one is having respect. That is the difference. Okay. 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 Um, thank you. Um, okay. So... Uh, So, the bottom line is, the dead, the dead get resurrected, Mashiach comes, and there's a happy ending. Let it be soon. <laughs>